Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's episode, we are going to be talking to an entrepreneur who's right now very much at the beginning of her journey. Her name is Doris Wang, and Doris is the founder of Fet New York, a food court that she plans on launching in New York soon. And the reason that I think that this discussion is interesting is because a lot of the startup conversations that you hear about today tend to be with founders who have already seen a good amount of success. So either their company has been acquired or it's seen an IPO. And while those discussions are very valuable, they offer a lot of insights. I think there's a lot of value in listening to someone who's still going through their journey and listening to the kind of problems that they're solving, the kind of decisions that they have to make. So I think this will be a helpful discussion for anyone who is already in the middle of starting something of their own or wants to start something of their own. Uh, in terms of Doris's background, very quickly, she has extensive experience in the food industry. She worked for Godiva, the famous chocolates brand, for over three years. She's also worked in the management consulting space. She was with Oliver Wyman for about a year or so. And she's also worked in the social entrepreneurship space. She was with the Ashoka organization for about two years. In terms of her educational background, she has quite a pedigree. She has a Bachelor of Arts from Harvard University, a Master of Science with a focus on Latin American studies from University of Oxford, and an MBA from the Wharton School. Yes, so a very talented lady. And yes, with that, let's welcome Doris. Doris, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sonali. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. As an entrepreneur, I'm guessing that you are fairly short on time pretty much all the time. It's uh, it's actually a good thing to be able to call my own shots in my schedule. That's something that I'm sure will come up in this conversation. So something like this that I'm really excited about, I can always make the time to do. So thank you for, again, inviting me. No, absolutely. And as I said in the, in the introduction also, I think there is need for more discussions with entrepreneurs who are right now still in the middle of their journey because you yeah. are right now still figuring out, you know, what do I do about this business, the kind of problems that you're facing on a day-to-day basis. So there'll be a lot to right. learn from you. So Doris, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what is Fet New York? What is it that you're building? Right. So Fet New York is going to be a food hall, brick and mortar food hall, um, which for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept It's basically, think of a food court in a shopping mall anywhere in America or anywhere around the world, but with more elevated offerings. So um, instead of seeing chain restaurants, you're more likely to see interesting local independent restaurateurs who are doing fast casual concepts. So it's shared seating, um, but you have a collection of of restaurants um, that are offering different types of food. So the idea is it's a place where you can go with a group of people and be able to sample many different types of cuisines and dishes while still getting to all sit together in the same place. So that's basically what uh, the food hall will look like. So is it sort of like, this is the first thing that's coming to my mind. There are actually a lot of these that exist in India. And I don't know if you've been to India, but in the US, for example, yeah, in the US, I think if you go to Vegas and if you go to like Venetian and the, all of those hotels, they do have like these food courts where mm-hmm. you have a whole bunch of restaurants along the corners and then there's shared, shared seating in the center. Is it sort of like that? Or probably a lot right. nicer. 
Right. There's many different variations on this theme. If you travel, whether it's in the United States or you you alluded to India, which I haven't visited, but I have seen versions of this in in Southeast or East Asia or in Europe. Um, You can get everything from what you're describing in Las Vegas. That certainly is on one end. I'd say that's sort of on the mega scope end of the scale Hmm. to, you know, much smaller, more informal, um, almost like pop-up style gatherings of different food vendors working together. So um, it really ranges. But yes, I'm sure most listeners will have seen something, Hmm. something along these lines in terms of format. It should look familiar. Gotcha. So then do you have some kind of focus? Like what is it? Are you targeting a certain segment or are you targeting? Do you want to have a certain kind of food in your food court? Yes. So um, as you can tell from the name of the business, FET New York, I think what's going to really make this food hall differentiate itself from other food halls, whether in New York City or elsewhere in the world, is really going to be the focus on celebrating what makes New York cuisine, New York cuisine. So what I mean by that is, um, again, some of your listeners may have heard about or even visited Italy, which is a, um, in New York City, it's a joint venture with the celebrity chef Mario Batali and the founder of the Italy business, which actually has multiple locations around the world, starting in um, Torino, Italy. It was an Italian entrepreneur who brought that to life. But um, Italy is sort of is a sort of food emporium, I would call it, because it also has retail grocery hmm. in addition to actual restaurants where you can eat on site. Um, but the, the notion of, of Italy is really to celebrate Italian cuisine, right? All the different regions of Italy, all the different types of um, food, whether it's pasta or meat or panini or gelato. So something like that, um, which I think Italy has done very successfully for Italian cuisine, I want to do that for New York cuisine. Now, the thing about New York cuisine, of course, is the whole fabric of it is the stitching together of so many different ethnic regional foods. So I think that'll be what's really the unique um, element that's going to draw people to to FET New York as opposed to some of these other food halls. Gotcha. Wow, that's a really interesting concept. And uh, I mean, I am not very familiar with New York cuisine, or I, I don't even know what, what might refer to as New York <laughs> cuisine, because it's like such it's a, a melting point. pot, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. It's not like if I tell you Italian cuisine, immediately you're going to have associations in your mind as to what that looks like, right? It's very visceral. I think with New York, you know, and even if you ask a hundred New Yorkers what New York cuisine is, I think they're going to be hard pressed. You're going to be hard pressed to get consistent answers. What I really, having lived here for a while now, when I think of New York cuisine, I think of this patchwork of all the different immigrant communities, some of which arrived two or 300 years ago, others arrived, you know, two or three months ago. And, but these, these incredible ethnic communities that populate the entire five boroughs of New York city. And they're just this rich diversity of all those different dishes and all those different cuisines. That's really what I want to represent. Now, of course, I would probably have to have 300 vendor stalls to be able to do that justice. (laughs) So of course I can't, you know, it's a matter of how do you capture the essence of that patchwork, so to speak, um, in, in a space that's actually manageable for the consumer as well, because you don't want to overwhelm the consumer with with too much at the same time. And are you targeting more street food kind of stuff or more slightly more higher end? Mm-hmm. So the trick here, I think, is really in a food hall format. And again, think of think of the markets you've been to in India mm-hmm. or think of the food courts and shopping malls in America. You're really there. It's not a white tablecloth fine dining right. experience, right? It's meant to be a much more casual and even grab and go. I think many of my customers, especially during the week, will be lunch, you know, the lunch crowd, office workers who really truly need to grab and go back to their offices. So I think the format of the actual dishes will look much more casual and street food like or, or you know, 
fast casual, which is a new term that um, Chipotle and Shake Shack and, and chains of that nature have really popularized recently. It'll be that kind of format and price point. But the inspiration behind the dishes, you know, in terms of the restaurants that I'm speaking to, to collaborate with me on Fet New York. And these are folks who've trained in Michelin starred kitchens. They're, they're very mm-hmm. creative, very innovative chefs. And it's not about dumbing down the cuisine. It's really about how do you use your creativity to take a dish that you might serve for $25 in a white tablecloth setting and transform it into something that's appropriate um, and exciting and interesting for a diner who might have to go back to their cubicle or who might be sitting there and have half an hour with their kids before they go to a theater show. I see. I see. That's a very interesting idea. So so I'm guessing in terms of your business model, you'll be providing this space and then individual yes. restaurants can come and pay you for setting up their stall. Precisely. So the business model here, which is uh, different from, you know, I would say most brick and mortar retail businesses where your income, if you're the business owner, is sales, right? Sales of your food, if you're a restaurant or sales of your um, clothing, if you're an apparel retailer. For me, this business model is really, it's property management. Right. The, the closest analogy is a shopping mall, right? If you're Westfield or your Oxford property is one of these big shopping mall groups, you know, the, the way you operate is you take a space, a vast empty mall, and you curate who the retailers are that occupy that space. And your income is going to be rents that those retailers pay you every month. Um, that is exactly the same business model we're talking about here. So at the, mm. at the essence of this, this is actually a real estate business model. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And so for you, the main thing would be convincing these various restaurants that yours is a place where you're getting a lot of foot traffic. And so it makes sense for them yes. to set up something, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and here, I think herein really lies the crux of the value proposition that I'm offering both sides of the equation. So from the from the restaurant vendor's point of view, the all the restaurateurs I'm speaking with, all the chefs I'm speaking with already have brick and mortar restaurants that have been quite successful. Um, But these tend to be very young, once again, very young chefs early in their careers who are doing very innovative, very, very innovative dishes. Economically for them, it's just not viable to open a full full size restaurant in Manhattan. Um, It's Mm. just the the rent numbers don't work out. So these are typically folks who've been uh, opening their businesses in what we call the outer boroughs. So you think of Brooklyn, you think of the Bronx or Queens, and because the rents are cheaper, quite simply, the the math works out. So Mm. for them, the value proposition really is here is an opportunity for you to open an outpost of your brand, of your restaurant, and maybe do a, a creative spin on it in a central location in midtown Manhattan that's going to be very heavily trafficked, but it's not going to compete with or cannibalize sales at your existing restaurant because it's a completely different market. Um, And in some ways, it's actually a platform for you to, uh, you know, expand your brand, make your presence more known, and maybe even recruit new customers to come to your original location. On the other end of the equation for consumers like you and me, the value proposition really is, hey, Sonali, you really want to explore, you know, on a, on a trip to New York, all the amazing cuisine that's to be had here, but you don't have time, maybe or nor the patience, to ride the subway for 50 minutes, mm-hmm. right? Deep mm-hmm. into deep into the Bronx or deep into Queens. Why don't you come to this one location in Midtown, um, which is very accessible, and you can try 12 different cuisines under one roof? Yeah. Actually, and you know what you're alluding to here is the classic marketplace, right? Where you have this, mm-hmm. you you base for for Doris for the food court owner, you have two kinds of customers. You have your restaurants right. who have their currently they're operating in Bronx, etc., and then you have your actual right. end users who are buying the food. So, how are you solving that? Actually, before before we get there, what stage are you at right now? Sure. So. 
Right now, the food hall is fully funded, um, which is probably, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the rest mm. of this conversation, but I think that's really the linchpin for any business, right? Funding is, of, of course, of paramount importance. But I think for brick and mortar, you need to have a certain amount of money in the bank because you're looking at acquiring real tangible assets um, and you need cash for that in a way that I think is different for an online entrepreneur. So I have, um, it's fully funded, which is uh, which was a huge step for me last year. Um, currently I'm looking for my real estate location. So really the, the next big milestone to hit is signing a lease on the actual location for FET New York. Right. And in the meantime, while I'm doing my real estate search, I've been busy setting up kind of all the lining up all the ducks in a row so that once we do sign a lease, we can hit the ground running. So primarily that's recruiting restaurant vendors. Um, yeah. Now, no one's going to sign an agreement with me to be one of my vendors until they see the location. So it's a little bit of catch 22 that I, I've see. been um, juggling the last yeah. several months, but there are preliminary conversations you can have to get to the point where you drum up interest and the next step simply becomes showing them the space once you have it. So gotcha. I'm in that sort of stage where, um, without a lease, there, there are many things that can't fall into place. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to break through next, but I've been doing as much as I can to set that up. So we don't waste time once that actually happens. Absolutely. So then, but it means then from what you're saying that, once you have the the location identified and you have the lease signed, then it should be comparatively easy. Well, not easy, but it should be possible to get vendors right. signed up, right? Yes, okay. exactly. Because if you think about it, um, this is a, a classic sales scenario. And this alludes a little bit to what you were saying, Sonali, about this being a marketplace where I really do have two types of customers, right? Um, I, I need to I need to pitch the, these vendors because um, they're really my paying customers. They're the right. ones who are paying me my income in rents. I need to convince them that this space that doesn't exist, this vision is really going to be not only a beautiful venture they want to be a part of, but it's going to be economically you know, viable and profitable for them. Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation like any sales conversation that takes multiple iterations, right? This is not a matter of you not, you call somebody one day and say, Hey, I have a great opportunity for you. And they sign on the dotted line 45 minutes later. So I really see these initial conversations, even before I have a lease, not as being a waste of my time by any stretch of the imagination. Instead, it's that first, it's like you're laying that first brick mm -hmm. um, in, in a pathway, right? And, and without that first brick, you won't be able to build the, the road um, that you want to yeah. travel down. Wow, this is very impressive, Doris, honestly, because... Uh, oh, thank you. I'm, it drives me crazy sometimes, Sonali. You're hearing <laughs> me speak about this in a more sane way right now. But trust me, there's a lot of um, a lot of crazy making that goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. And uh, I think yeah. what probably makes it harder is, is it just you right now or are there it, more? It is just me. It yeah. is, I'm, I'm a solo founder in this case. Yeah. So I guess part of your time must also be going into building out your team, right? Uh, someone who yes. may... Yes. Yeah, so we, um, and again, we can, we can talk about this in more detail and there, there was quite a lot of thought that I put into whether or not to find a co-founder. Um, mm -hmm. and if so, what the profile that co-founder should be. And I do have some thoughts on that we can touch upon, but, um, it, for now I've decided that looking for a co-founder doesn't make sense anymore at this stage of the game, because it'd be giving up a lot of equity for, um, for somebody that I've decided I could really hire as my first employee. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And once again, we can talk about sort of the profile of that person and, and why employee number one, as opposed to a co-founder and the pros and cons uh, involved in that. But I am at a stage now where if you look at my, you know, my expenses, it really doesn't make sense since I'm not making income 
to bring on another person at this, you know, I'm, I'm more or less able to handle what needs to be done. And I have a lot of advisors. I have a real estate broker. I have a lease attorney. I have a corporate attorney. I have a CPA. So those, Mm. those folks are part of my extended team, but they're external. Right. Mm. And I think once we get closer to actually opening the food hall, there will be a general manager and an assistant general manager that I'll have to bring on board. And, um, one of the tricks, I think not tricks, one of the wrinkles to the real estate, uh, the, the retail um, industry, excuse me, is, you know, those of us who come from the corporate world, we may not have that much experience working with frontline retail associates right. and the folks, you know, baristas at Starbucks or right. and the salesperson at uh, the Bed Bath & Beyond. That's a vast, you know, vast segment of our workforce that, again, many of us don't have that much exposure to as professionals. You know, as consumers, of course, we do. But I think um, in speaking to my friends who have brick-and-mortar businesses, that's actually one of the biggest challenges is the labor question. So I'm still quite far (laughs) removed from that, but I've been gathering, you know, insights from other entrepreneurs as to how to how to tackle that as successfully as possible down Absolutely. the road. Okay. So this is, this was great, Doris, because I did want to understand a little bit of, you know, what is it that you're working on that helps put everything into context. So now let's transition to then understanding your journey, right? I mean, now it's sure. been how long now since you've been working on this? It's been so since I first conceived of the idea and began doing due diligence on it, it's been about two and a half years. Okay. Wow. Most of that time I was still working a day job at Godiva, which you alluded to in the introduction. Um, but in terms of full-time work on this project, it's been about nine months now. Got it. Okay. So yeah, so you mentioned that you got the idea while you were at Godiva. So walk us a little right. bit through that. How and when did you get this idea? Right. Well, it's one of these classic cliches, Sonali, which um, it is a cliche for a reason. There's a kernel of truth to it. You know, they say mothers, the uh, the necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> um, and in that case, it was very much true for me. I found while working at Godiva's um, headquarters, which here in New York City is on 34th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues for people who are not that familiar with New York City, um, that is in the heart of the business district in Midtown and only steps away from Penn Station, which is the um, one of two very large train stations in New York. I mm-hmm. think many people will think of Grand Central, which is the more beautiful, um, not the more historic <laughs> train station, interestingly, but it's been, um, I think, at, from a retail and a passenger experience perspective, Grand Central has been given a lot of attention and love that Penn Station has not. And there's a whole history lesson behind that, which I won't get into, but Penn Station is um, quite frankly um, the armpit of New York City. It's a te- <laughs> it's just a terrible mass of commuters. It's poorly, but it's actually underground. Mm. Um, but it is actually the busiest train station in the Western Hemisphere oh, really? by passenger traffic annually, which was an interesting factoid I didn't realize. Um, but literally, there are more people who pass through that station every year than any train station in either North or South America. Well, wow, but I didn't you know wouldn't, that. you know, by looking at it, you wouldn't. It's just such an unpleasant place to be. So my office was right, right there, and so um, I would say that the rest of the neighborhood surrounding Penn Station is a reflection of the train station. It's it feels very transient. Not much. Um, not much development, not much love has gone into the surroundings, both in terms of actual real estate and in terms of the retail offerings, namely the food. That was really what was a pain point for me. Monday through Friday, lunchtime, every day, it was scratch my head and ask myself, what mediocre meal do I want to pay $15 <laughs> for today? Literally. You know, and it wasn't just me. I knew that there were 
thousands of office workers within a five minute walk of my office that were asking themselves the same question. So that's mm-hmm. really where the idea started. Yeah. But actually, you hit upon an important point there that you did have some kind of a price point in mind. That's correct. Yes, right? I think that's really critical. And um, I think one thing we may discuss more is how I how I vetted the idea. And a, a big piece of that was understanding um, the, these transactional mechanics, you know, how much is someone going to pay for a meal? You know, how many, how many people walk through your door? The, all these little numbers add up to making um, a business model work or fail. Mm. Yeah, that is going to be my next question, actually, because so clearly you identified a problem that you yourself were facing yeah. and, you know, maybe right. some of your friends. So then what was your next step? How did you validate that there was actually this need in the market? Right. I think there were really two angles to this. Now, on the one hand, there was a qualitative piece of doing my homework, doing my due diligence on the idea to see if it was viable. Um, and that qualitative piece was really, you know, interviewing people who knew the area very well, but better than, you know, I, I was sort of a, a corporate denizen of the neighborhood, so to speak, Monday through Friday, but I wasn't an expert by any means on, for example, zoning. Like, were there actually municipal regulations that prevented the kind of development that mm-hmm. I was seeking, right? Like that could be a real uh, structural obstacle. Um, or what, you know, was something else going on? So for example, one of the first people I sought out was the president of um, what's called the Garment District Alliance. So that part of town is referred to as the Garment District because it used to be that we're talking in the 1920s and the 1930s. It used to be the textile center of the United States, actually. And um, so it's still known as the Garment District. And there's a uh, a bid, a business improvement district, which is, um, you'll find these all over, all over the country. They're nonprofit organizations formed by businesses in a given neighborhood. And their job is to really promote the well-being of those businesses in that neighborhood. So the head of the Garment District Alliance um, was very willing to meet with me. I think she's obviously interested in how to improve the neighborhood. Um, and uh, so I interview people like that to understand the history of the neighborhood and, and what are the actual real estate dynamics? What are the retail dynamics mm. um, at play here? So that was a very interesting kind of deep dive for me, kind of like what you do with folks in different, you know, different industries. I got to do that with people who knew the garment district from different angles. So this um, is, and then, uh, just a mm-hmm, quick uh, follow up question on this. So I, at this point, you were just, you know, a uh, mid I would say mid-level employee at totally. Godiva, right? Right. And then you reached Absolutely. out to this lady who was the head of the garment district. So, what? Right. Was, why did she decide to speak with you? I, I think this is right. important for people question. to understand, right? Because yeah, that's, that's important. Such a great question, Sonali. Absolutely. Um, you know, at the beginning, especially, I found that to be a real exactly what you described to be a real. Um, it would trip me up psychologically in terms of my confidence in approaching these people. Who, yeah, this woman, you know. It's not as if she's, um, you know, the governor of New York State, but she's somebody who legitimately could, could receive my phone call or my email and say, why should I return this, right? Yeah. Um, so I would say two things to that. Number one, it actually made me think constantly about something that Sheryl Sandberg writes about in, in Lean In, which is this imposter syndrome that I think many, um, whether it's young professionals and or women especially, tend to suffer from. It's this feeling of, I don't know enough. I'm a novice, I'm an expert. And so therefore I have no right, or, you know, I'm going above my station by asking these questions, especially people who, who do know a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt a little bit like an imposter because, you know, who was I, I was, as you pointed out, a mid-level manager at Godiva. Um, what did I know about building a food hall in the garment district? So on the one hand, I just want to, I guess, validate that that is truly a feeling that I struggled with at the time. And I don't think there's any shame in admitting that that was truly something that was holding me back. 
However, at the same time, I think it was important to have the awareness that um, that is something that you can overcome. And in fact, you have to overcome if you mm-hmm. want to really get to the bottom of, of something. Right. And so I was, so I guess the second thing I would say to you is I was very pleasantly surprised, not, you know, a hundred percent of the time, but I would say nine times out of 10, people were so willing to open their doors to me. And I think I'm guessing what convinced them to do that is, um, number one, an alignment of interests, right? So in the case of this woman who ran the garment district bid, and um, you know, she's interested in how do we improve this neighborhood for the residents and for the uh, companies that that live there and work there. Hmm. So when I came to her with this idea that was meant to sort of elevate this neighborhood that I felt was so, so underdeveloped and it does, just does not meet its potential. It's in the middle of Manhattan and yet it's this sort of black hole um, and it shouldn't be given its location. I think she really, you know, there was a click there. It was kind of like, wow, we actually have the same motivations and the hmm. same agenda. So I think that was one thing. And the second thing, quite frankly, was just enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt very strongly about the potential in this neighborhood. And I felt very strongly that we needed better food. <laughs> it was a food <laughs> desert. And um, I knew that I wasn't alone in feeling that. And I think that genuine enthusiasm and passion, again, it sounds very cliche, Sonali, but I really think no, that is your ticket <laughs> yeah. into so many different conversations and offices that you don't think you have access to. No, I mean, I think you make a very, very important point, right? Because a lot of, as you said, it does trip up a lot of people. So did you, uh, I'm guessing in the beginning, was it a phone call or was it email? Mm, it was literally, in this case, it was an email, you know, different conversations I was able to um, access through different means. Oftentimes, something as simple as an email would turn into a, a meeting. They would they would see me. Um, in some cases, it was a, a phone call as well, or sometimes an in-person visit. I find that people have a lot a much more difficult time saying no to your face um, yeah. if you yeah. have the balls to just walk in, you know, <laughs> um, if there is a physical place that you can, you can, you can actually show right. up at. Um, but yeah, again, you'd be surprised the number of times it just takes a little digging on the internet. And our generation is so good at doing that, you know, we're the masters of Google searching and it all it takes is five or 10 minutes oftentimes of rooting around. And, you know, I'm going to say this facetiously, but we're also pretty good at Facebook stalking people. Yeah. It's, it's an element of that <laughs> yeah. same investigative, like dogged persistence. And it's not that hard usually to find someone's email address or phone number and, and online. Did you do something in that? Did you say something to sort of convey to this person that you are very serious about this? Like this wasn't mm-hmm. just a random thing that you were fooling around with? Right. Well, I think that's a, that's an excellent question you asked because especially in that initial uh, contact you're trying to make, you know, you don't want that to be, you want it to be very precise and mm-hmm. very efficient, right? These are busy people. They don't have time to read, you know, a 15 page summary or a PowerPoint de- deck that you send over to them. So it's, I, I did spend a lot of time trying to distill down, you know, how do I convey my, my authenticity and my, you know, whatever expertise I have, because I, I, I became sort of an amateur, investigator of this concept, right? In my free time. So I spent a lot of time, for example, sitting around in restaurants and coffee shops in this part of town and just observing. Um, And the number of things you learn just by doing that is is pretty astonishing. Um, So it's like, how do you take all of that and craft it into, quite frankly, a single paragraph that has maybe three or four sentences in it that really pack a punch? Mm -hmm. Um, So that I think that took a lot of practice and iteration, but eventually I kind of struck upon that, you know, they're not magic words, but that sort of perfect combination of 
um, efficiency, you know, pithiness, but also real substantive content. So they knew that I was someone serious. And, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was perfectly willing to throw around names and mention Godiva. You know, it's a well-known, yeah. well-respected brand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, throw around the Wharton name or the Harvard name. Um, not, you know, because those, those are, I, I think, yeah. finding ways in which you connect with these folks, whether it's through alma maters or through um, corporate background, you know, resume background, that's something that's going to cause them to sort of pay attention, right? right. So let's not be shy about, about doing that when we can. No, absolutely. I mean, you do have to establish your credibility, especially in the very first go, so that they know that, okay, this exactly. person is serious. Uh, exactly. So another interesting thing that you just mentioned is that you spent a lot of time, so as you were trying to validate whether this is an idea worth pursuing, you spoke with a lot of people who had the expertise. You also said that you meant that you uh, sat in coffee shops just observing what yeah. was happening. So can you share, you know, maybe something interesting that stood out for you? Sure. So this is um, going back to when you asked me the question of how I vetted the idea in the first place. Yeah. I, we we talked about the qualitative side of things, which is you know these interviews with folks. Um, on the quantitative side of things, this is where your your question now comes into play. It was really about building a, a scrappy financial model with what information I had. Now the trick is, you know, this is not something I, I'm not an investment banker. I don't have access to you know industry analyst reports on, on this, mm-hmm. on this, um, industry that I could just look up in a library or online database and then boom, create my Excel model. It was a lot more, when I say scrappy, it was very much built from the ground up and built from these, these observations, um, that, you know, anyone frankly has access to. So I knew that in the financial model, a real key question would be understanding at a given price point, which I already knew from my own personal experience, how much people pay for lunch in Midtown. Um, but what was the, what were the foot traffic numbers really that I would need to hit in order for this to be financially viable given Mm -hmm. what my costs were? So there was a number of these questions, these variables that I had to get an answer to. And look, these are rough estimates, right? So not only I wasn't going to get very precise, um, once again, nice clean numbers that have been vetted by multiple analysts that just wasn't available to me. Um, but I think it's about not letting that scare you. You know, I think that's when the perfect becomes the enemy of the good, to use another cliche, you know, saying, but I think it's very true. It was more about understanding roughly back of the envelope. Do these numbers add up? So hmm. one of the things I did is I sat, <laughs> literally, yeah. I would sneak off during lunch breaks at Godiva. Um, and for an hour I would sit in one of these, they're kind of like cafeteria style businesses. We call them midtown delis. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're imagine this like vast, uh, room that has multiple stations. Like you'd have in a cafeteria. So there's a salad bar there's a burger station. You, know, you might have had this in, in your college, right? In yeah. your college dorm. Yeah. And then there's like a pizza station. And so these things are, again, the, the quality of food is very mediocre, but they're they're swapped at right. lunchtime because they're the only option and they're convenient. So I would sit there with a stopwatch on my iPhone <laughs> and a pad and paper, um, you know, in the corner hiding um, in case my colleagues walked through <laughs> the deli. <laughs> and I would literally record for every five minute interval over a half hour period how many people were walking in and out the doors. Wow. It's not simple. And I did that for, you know, several different locations around the neighborhood, um, different times of day. So, you know, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., what does the foot traffic look like from 12 to 1230? Yeah. And pretty interesting, I guess, to answer a question, was there anything, you know, sort of astonishing that came out? Patterns started to emerge. Mm. Patterns started to emerge in a very, um, it wasn't very crisp way, but it was definitely the numbers started to kind of, you know, hone in on an answer. 
Um, and that was something that I would then go back and plug into the, the quantitative model I was building. So yeah. that was the other part of the vetting process. That is amazing, Doris. Honestly, like hats off to you. I, but I, I think that is such <laughs> a key quality for an entrepreneur, right? That, as you said, like, right. you know, it's very easy to get bogged down with, oh, I don't have access to this report or yes. that data. But hey, you know, you just have to sit in a restaurant and record this for X number of days and you'll get some idea. Exactly. It doesn't have to and be you perfect. Get some answer. That's yeah. right. And then if you also find that actually no patterns are emerging, yeah. that to me is also a pattern, you know, that tells you that maybe this one restaurant or this one deli is doing something differently. Is it their location? Is it their offering? You know, what what is it what is it doing differently from its neighbor that's causing this difference in the numbers, right? So I think um, I think I think with brick and mortar businesses, we go back to this theme we have about online versus brick and mortar entrepreneurs and how is the experience different. This is one of the beauties of brick and mortar, uh, any sort of brick and mortar industry is you probably have examples of whatever business it is that you want to start, a coffee shop, a, you know, a shoe store, a wine bar. You probably have favorites of that thing, that, you know, favorite wine bars that you can go to. You can just go there um, anytime you want as a customer and you can actually gather a lot of information using your senses. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and I think in your case, it is kind of clear to me now why you would have chosen something which was more brick and mortar as opposed to Mm. online. But was that ever a decision point for you? I grappled with this question when you sent it to me because (laughs) my instinct was to say, no, no, I never did. I I gravitated straight towards the... um, brick and mortar. I think that's generally true. I think there are solutions to the problem that I saw in this neighborhood that could have been online. Mm. And in fact, you know, if you look at something like seamless, right, or these, all these Uber eats, all these different um, online facilitated services that are trying to crack an actual, you know, real world problem. Like how do I get my lunch? Certainly there's many people pursuing that path. But for me, I think at the end of the day, Sonali, I personally, and this is something I discovered at Godiva, I like services. That's something that I just have a passion about, especially hospitality. The thought of creating an actual physical environment that you invite the customer into, whether it's a hotel or a restaurant, um, and then creating an experience for them through through serving them, in this case, food, right? Or through giving them a space where they want to come and hang out with their family and friends because it's so comfortable or it's so you know um, beautiful. That is something that really excites me in a way that I found products whether they're virtual products um, online or actual physical products like a box of chocolates at Godiva, those just didn't hold the same allure for me somehow. And I think that's very subjective. But I did know that about myself. And so when I saw this problem, my head went instantly to a solution that was very service and hospitality oriented. And that's fair. I mean, you do want to pursue something which you personally feel very connected with, right? So Absolutely. Absolutely. So then uh, walk us through that journey of, so you, you know, you got the idea, you, you spend a lot of time figuring out, okay, does this actually make sense? What the financial model would look like, roughly speaking. So then what was your next step? Mm-hmm. So the next step was really being able to articulate all these different components of the food hall, you know, why this neighborhood? What kind of food vendors? Mm-hmm. How big is your food hall going to be? How many customers are you going to have? All these, again, qualitative and quantitative elements that were floating around in my head. You have to be able to communicate that, right? Wow. Whether it's to a prospective funding, you know, backer, an investor, um, or someone who, like, again, the head of the Garment District Alliance, uh, who might be able to do me a favor and introduce me to people, whoever it is that you're talking to, you need to be able to communicate that vision. So that was really the next step for me was um, 
mapping it all out, looking at all the different permutations of what this could look like, and then trying to get to an answer that that made sense to me and that I had vetted, as we discussed, um, and then figuring out how to present that in a way that someone could understand very intuitively, right? I think it's entrepreneurs get into trouble when they're, either their ideas are so complex that they're very difficult to communicate to somebody who's an outsider, or they just, maybe the ideas aren't necessarily complex, but they are, the entrepreneurs are struggling to put that, once again, get to that pithy message, right? That someone who doesn't have expertise in, you know, your neighborhood or your line of work or your product or service can get right away. I think that's extremely important. So that was really the next step for me. And I obviously did that with a big eye towards getting funding for this project. Got it. Yeah. I mean, but the, you said that you're, you're already funded is how, how did you get funding? Right. So in my case, it was a bit of a particular journey only because I um, have a family friend, a friend of my parents, who's a real estate developer based in China, though he's been doing some work in the San Francisco Bay Area recently. So he's becoming more familiar with real estate in the United States. Mm-hmm. He's, again, a family friend of my parents, and um, we've known him for several years now. And he, he's somebody who very much was is, is a self-made man. Um, once again, a cliche, but it truly has shaped who he is. He started off very much as a middle-class kind of guy in, in China in the um, 80s, saw an opportunity in real estate development in Shenzhen, which um, for listeners who aren't familiar with that part of China, it's right across the border from Hong Kong. And it's one of the special economic zones that um, Premier Deng Xiaoping targeted um, when he was making the great push to sort of liberalize the Chinese economy. So my investor got in at the right time there and really experienced what it was like to build his business from scratch, pretty much from nothing. Hmm. And at this point, um, he, you know, he's in his forties. He's still very young. He still now runs a conglomerate in Shenzhen. Um, but I think one of his passions is to nurture young entrepreneurs. And so I got very lucky, you know, not only is he someone of financial means, but he also understands that there is, you know, there's investing with an eye towards returns and only returns. And, and that's one philosophy for in one model for investing. And then there's this other kind of investing, which you see more in friends and family, or you see in angel circles, where there really is an element of, you know, it needs to be a smart financial decision, right? You don't want to just throw your money away, but you're really there to nurture someone who's trying to build a business. Mm-hmm. And um, so in that light, he and I had had conversations well before I thought of Fet New York about, you know, someday if there's something I wanted to, uh, a concept I wanted to pursue, you know, he would say, come talk to me about it because, I'd be interested in, in potentially supporting you. I so I had that, I was very fortunate that I had that particular set of circumstances. So now that being said, it still took me probably 18 months of refining the concept, you know, addressing his questions, making formal presentations and informal presentations to him before he said to me, you know what, you're ready, mm. we're going to invest. And so okay. that's what happened um, last spring. Um, we closed on on investment investment for Fed New York, and that's what allowed me to leave Godiva because the investment included um, funding for my salary. Oh, I see. Oh, very cool. So, how how do you know this gentleman, by the way? Mm-hmm. So he's actually. I grew up in the in the Bay Area, and my parents still live in Los Altos, which is one of those towns in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And his family. He's one of these Chinese entrepreneurs whose um, wife and kids are are living in California or somewhere in the United States for the kids' education, right? So classic example of something you're seeing all over the the West Coast in particular of Canada and the United States. And so my parents became friends with his wife because the kids were in school in um, in the Palo Alto School District. Got it. And so that's how kind of they, they met. And, and my parents, having been very familiar with education in the United States, having raised 
three kids of their own and put them through the California school system, um, they sort of found a common sort of interest and, and uh, support there. And so I that's see. how we, we met. That's how I met my So it's like a family connection that has existed exactly. for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. But I think right. this is another important point, right? That these people who can help you along your journey, you might find them anywhere. It doesn't have to be necessarily so through some professional oh, networking event. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. You just, you never know, right? I think um, once again, we could go to another cliche. This is turning into the interview cliches, but there's some, <laughs> some of these sayings, you know, and I, I'm going to butcher this one, but the idea, um, the idea isn't that, isn't that, you know, good fortune falls into your lap. I think it's really about being prepared mm. um, and then being really open to the possibility that opportunities can come around any corner and from any sort of from any part of your life. Um, and this one, again, this was years in the making, really. Again, my family has known um, my investor and his family for several years now. And it's, you know, I've only been doing this full time for nine months. And it wasn't as if when we met at the very beginning, I had this in mind by any means. So I think it's more about always being prepared and keeping that eye open for that opportunity. When that door opens, right, don't they say that the person who's successful is the one who steps through the door, not the one who, you know, yeah. stumbles yeah. upon the open door necessarily. So I really feel that was true in, in my right. experience. No, absolutely. And I was going to ask you that uh, since as you mentioned yourself, that this seems to be more of a real estate business more than yes. anything. And I don't think you have real estate experience, right? No. Right? <laughs> but, it, but I think this, this Chinese gentleman is getting sort of filling yes. in that position, at least for now. That's right. Okay. That's yeah. right. Yes, exactly. And I think, um, once again, some of these things, right, where let's go back to the conversation we had about the imposter syndrome that Shell right. Sandberg talks about. Right. Um, you know, it's something I've also really struggled with is I don't have experience in either real estate or restaurants for that matter. And those, I think there are the two industry labels. If you forced me to, to label what I'm doing, I think those are the two I would pick. Um, and so a lot of this has be, been me struggling to overcome that sense of inferiority because I yeah. don't have that background, right? And that people are judging me. But I'm going to be honest with you again, the reality is, you know, if, if I wanted to go, if I wanted to start SpaceX and launch a moon rocket, I think I'd be, you know, I don't think I'd be the right person to do that. But in, in the case of many brick and mortar industries where you have consumer experience, um, I'm not saying that that's enough qualification for you to launch a successful brick and mortar business, but I think it's a great foundation. And I think if you start there, it's mm -hmm. kind of like we were saying about you can go sit in a coffee shop and observe who the customers are and how many come in per hour. That's the kind of thing I started there. And, and real estate and restaurants are not rocket science. They're not launching SpaceX. And so <laughs> the beauty is you actually dedicate time to it. And if you're enough of a, a geek like I was, and I was willing to spend a lot of my free time researching this, you can. it's surprising how much you can learn about something yeah. um, in a pretty short amount of time. Did you do anything special to get over this imposter syndrome? Like, mm -hmm. did... Uh, I mean, was it a, was it too much of a struggle or was it something like, no, I mean, you told yourself that, hey, you've done a lot in your life already. No, Doris, you can do this. Right. Right. It was a struggle, Sonali. It was much more the former than the latter. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting now that I've, again, it's been maybe two and a half years since I really started doing all the, the footwork, the, you know, the, the legwork for this, um, even though it's only been under a year since I've been doing it full time. Now, you know, I actually am sometimes surprised, almost like you have these out of my out of body experiences in a meeting, you know, a few months ago, I was meeting with a prospective landlord, um, you know, and she grew up in this industry of real estate. This is her thing, right? You can't pull the wool over this woman's eyes. Mm. And she was grilling me, not grilling. She was very politely asking me many detailed questions about my concept, about my numbers, right? These are things that you can't lie about. 
And at the end of two and a half hours, she actually came. She was like, you are so well prepared. I am so excited about your concept. And I just know you're going to be successful. And, you know, it was one of those moments where I kind of had to laugh. And again, it was like an out-of-body experience where I was like, look at, look at this, Doris. Like two years ago, who would have thought that you would have been in this position? Like where you, you know, and, and to be part, to be, again, once again, fully transparent, Sonali, there were moments in that meeting when I did feel like, a little bit like an imposter still, because it's not as if I've actually opened and run a food hall yet, right? As you pointed out in the introduction, I'm still at an early stage. So, it, But yet I've done so much work on this by now hmm. that I really, even someone who's an industry veteran, you know, it didn't, like, she was like, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. And I'm just, I'm just giving this as an example, not to in any way say that I'm extraordinary. I'm simply saying that someone like me who had such little confidence mm -hmm. in this, mm -hmm. it took a couple years, but I got to the point where I, I, and I continue to struggle with this imposter syndrome. But one thing I learned is that <laughs> and I learned this through, um, I've been working with an executive coach for the last couple of years. And this is something we, we discuss frequently, fake it till you make it. <laughs> and I, at first, you know, I was very uncomfortable with that because in the way I've been brought up and the way I've been trained in my education, you know, faking it is not something that's seen as a virtue. Um, you know, it's, it's like there's a fine line between that and lying, right? Or, or hyperbole, let's say. But I think it's more about if you are genuinely, authentically doing that research and try, doing the due diligence to try to educate yourself on something, when you project confidence, when you talk about something, that gets reflected back to you. Not by everybody, not all the time, but it is truly a virtuous cycle I have experienced in the last couple of years, right? And there were moments when I was much like, there were moments when I wouldn't tell people about this idea because I was so afraid they would judge me mm. for being a novice. Mm. And I found that as I learned more about it in my little secret ways, like with my notepad and my stopwatch and the deli cap, you know, I started actually gaining empirical observations about this. It was like, actually, I do know a thing or two about this. Hmm. Um, and as I began to project that confidence, even when I didn't, I would project more confidence than I felt, let's put it that way. It would get reflected back to me. People would say, wow, yeah. Um, have you thought about this, that, or the other? And I'd say, yeah, actually I have. And it would, it actually would boost my confidence yeah. having those conversations to the point where two years later, truly, I, I could get through a two and a half hour meeting with the landlord and I felt great about what I had to say, even though I still haven't opened my business. I think to me that was, that just was like the icing on the cake to prove that this whole fake it till you make it um, mentality can be extremely effective when you feel like an imposter. No, thank you so much for sharing this, because I think this is important for people to realize that and like take your example and take a, even a lot of companies that have been very successful in Silicon Valley. A lot of these founders do not have any experience in that industry. But right. if, if you do want to do something, I think this fake it till you make it and just sort of having a lot of belief in yourself and going after it, like you right. shouldn't let it stop you. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's fake it till you make it. I would add, um, fake it till you make it with an open mind, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's projecting that confidence because, you know, having giving yourself credit for the legwork that you have done. I think that's the faking it part. It's not as, again, it's not about inventing things. It's about taking what you do know and maybe just giving yourself more credit for what you do know. And yet the open mind part to me is, you know, you are going to be speaking to people who do know a lot more than you do about these subjects. And so being a sponge and really soaking up what they have to say, um, but they're going to be more willing to share that with you if you project that confidence right. to begin with. Right. So then... I mean, overall, I mean, you mentioned that now you're at the stage when you're actively trying to a identify where you want to open your food court and mm -hmm. uh, finalize the lease. Plus, you're trying to build your vendor connections. So right. that uh, so 
what are the key challenges that you're facing now uh, from the point of view of opening a brick and mortar retail business? Right. I think very, this is fairly tactical at this point, but the biggest challenge I have right now, and this is, this is, uh, I think quite unique to brick and mortar as opposed to an online startup. Um, the price of entry is really high hmm. in brick and mortar, right? Okay. I think for online business, and it depends on the kind of online business you're running, of course. But I think nowadays with, you know, Amazon Web Services and with um, Squarespace and just all these different companies that give you a platform to start an online business, um, it's. I think there's a much lower cost to to play, right? right. You you can you can test something out online for. Um, in a relatively short period of time for not that much money. And now if you want to scale it, that's where you really need to raise the big bucks, right? But I think getting into the game is just much much more frictionless online than yeah. it is in brick and mortar. It's, um, you know, and that's what I'm finding with this lease situation. So I, I have the funding even, and yet until I have a location that makes sense for the business, um, both in terms of, you know, the concept, being able to execute, being able to find the foot traffic I need, um, and being able to actually, you know, make the numbers work on the economics without that in place, I don't really have a business Sonali. And so mm -hmm. that's, um, it's this catch 22, once again, that I alluded to where I know all these dominoes will start falling. You know, I think you said this earlier in a, in a certain way you said, oh, it'll be, once you have the lease, it'll be easy. And then you caught yourself and said, well, not easy, <laughs> but it'll be right. And I, I agree with you. It's not that it's easy, of course, but it'll be very, it'll it's very straightforward. Um, the steps that follow once you have a lease, everyone knows what they are. You know, you start the design process for the actual architecture of the interior. Yeah. You start the permitting process with the with the local government to get all the you know work permits that you need. You start construction. It, it, you start the leasing process with your vendors. That like I know now each of those steps will have a myriad of complications, but I know what the steps are. Right now, it just feels like it almost feels like water, like river water rushing at a dam, and it's all. <laughs> building up. And until that lease is secured, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating place to be in because you feel like you just can't test anything and you can't really move forward yeah. until you have this piece of the puzzle solved. Yeah. And so that's a distinction I would draw to the online case where right. I just think it's a lot easier to at least try different things out and to iterate, um, in a way that you're not held up by something as looming as like your location. And that's true of any brick and mortar business, right. not just a food hall. Right. And you're right. I mean, so I, I think cost is definitely a big part of this. As you mentioned, that the cost of entry for a brick and mortar business is just way higher, like a lot yes. higher. But then yes. also the time commitment, I think, because I mean, as you're mm -hmm. describing this, right, you, you, you've already been at this for about two years or so, including the time mm -hmm. that you spent at Godiva. Uh, yeah. Now you have to get the lease and you have to get the vendor signed on. <laughs> then there's the yes. actual construction, right, mm -hmm. of the food court, oh, yes. which will be like all the design, getting and the zoning right. and permitting and all that. So we're talking about, I mean, do you have a time frame in mind right now? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, um, once again, it's entrepreneur wisdom, right? They say everything's going to take twice as long as you think it will. And I knew that going in. And, and even then, you know, even my conservative estimates have been stretched a little bit. Um, so I expect as once I sign a lease, I expect that permitting and construction will take probably nine to 12 months okay. for a project of this size, right? So the size space I'm looking at is about 10,000 square feet. Um, you know, I guess how, how to describe that, I think a typical Starbucks, which I think a lot of people will have a, a frame of reference for that is maybe 1,500 to 2,000 square feet. So I think see. of like five or six Starbucks stores all right. glued together, right? So it's a sizable space. Yeah. Um, and then, and so I think the good thing is during that construction phase, 
I can be doing things like hiring my assistant general manager and my general manager. I can begin looking into what is the point of sale system that I want. Mm-hmm. I can also be, I can do the re- lease up process with my vendors. So there will be some parallel processing there once the lease is signed. But we're looking at, you know, I would say if I can open in the first half of 2018, I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a long, that's that, like you pointed out, once again, to just draw the contrast with online businesses. Right. Um, that's, this is a long time horizon game you have to get into. So it's a lot of startup capital um, and a long, long set of time horizons you have to, you have to just work with as the reality. Yeah. No, but, but I think, as you said, that if you're the kind of person who wants to create that tangible experience, who wants to be there right. with their, with your customers and, give them something physical, I mean, then right. uh, then it's totally worth it. That's right. I agree with that. So, um, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of things. I mean, what, what does your typical day look like now? Mm. It's, it really does vary depending on the day, which once again, I feel like I'm throwing you so many of these um, trite truisms, <laughs> but they are truisms. It, it does depend on the day only because um, when you're an entrepreneur, especially a solo founder, right, you have to wear so many hats that it really is unpredictable from day to day or even week to week what it is you're going to find yourself doing. So I would say within any given week, you know, I spend part of my time on the phone with my lawyers. Um, I have a corporate attorney who helped me, for example, with the incorporation documents for Mm -hmm. my LLC um, and has dealt with other corporate matters that have arisen. I now have a lease attorney who's looking over these um, term sheets that I'm submitting to landlords for space. Um, so that takes some time. I do my own bookkeeping right now. So I I have a CPA for the more complex matters, but the day-to-day accounting is something that I'm teaching myself. Uh, you know, they taught us some basics at Wharton, Sonali, so I'm putting those to good use. Um, so there's some administrative things like that. And then there's much more strategic uh, long-term big vision things like meeting with prospective restaurant vendors. That's one of my favorite things to do. I think um, I'm in the middle of reading a, a New Yorker profile of Anthony Bourdain, and he talks about how fortunate he is where his job is basically to travel around the world and eat food. Um, <laughs> that's what he gets to do for his TV show. And I kind of get to do that on a mini scale, traveling <laughs> around New York City and eating food to really see who's going to be a great fit for Fat New York. Yeah. So that's And then having, converse, obviously, business conversations with the owners about what their vision is for expansion and what kind of food hall they might be interested in being a part of. So um, it, it really just spans the gamut from, again, very administrative things. And I would say that you know, if entrepreneurship is something that's interesting for any of your listeners, they need to understand, um, it is really going to, you're going to be doing everything, whether it's the really tedious, you're literally taking photographs of receipts with my QuickBooks app on my phone so I can do my accounting properly to the very sort of sexy big picture stuff like, um, branding, you know, understanding what, how to convey my vision to, to consumers and the look and feel of the space and who are my restaurant vendors going to be. It, you have to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and do all of that, at least at the beginning mm-hmm. until you have a big enough team to specialize. Yeah. And you know, I was wondering that how are you figuring out which vendor will finally make it in because five or six vendors is still a, is still a small number, right? I'm guessing you have right. a choice of maybe a few hundred at least as such that right. you can choose from. So absolutely. So I guess, so you said that first you're just trying out everyone's food and seeing which one clicks right. with you. Um, right. And then how do you establish a connection with the vendor? Do you, do you know these people? Do you try and find a common connection? How are you reaching out to them? 
Right. I've tried everything um, from a cold call. And um, the thing is, you calling restaurants really, you don't get any bid on the phone other than a reservationist. Yeah. And so you, yeah. cold by cold call, I mean, oftentimes it's dropping by the restaurant in person to try and catch the chef or the owner mm. um, to asking around for, for uh, connections. And I, I've had all types, but I, once again, kind of like we were saying, Sonali, when I were, was talking about asking for these informational interviews with experts, You'd be surprised. I think, again, I'm in the hospitality industry where, where people are very friendly, right? The whole point is to deliver service. Mm. And so maybe I am lucky in that regard where people are very open to, to talking to a stranger who just comes to the restaurant. Um, but I've been surprised how many times I'll, I'll walk in literally with um, just, I'll have eaten there the week before and I'll come in and I'll say that I'm a customer and I'd like to speak with the owner. And not always right away, but oftentimes I, I do get a call back from that. Oh, wow. One little trick that I actually have developed that I think really makes a difference. Um, in clo- it's, again, it's, it's about sales, right? So how do you stand out amongst all these people who want to work with these chefs? You know, they're, they're getting, they're not, I'm not the only one who wants to cl- collaborate with them. You know, like I'm finding there's a lot of a lot of other folks who want to do cookbooks or TV shows or <laughs> open new restaurants in Miami or Phoenix, right? They're, they're very busy and very in-demand people. That's the nature of work, wanting to work with talented chefs, right? Um, one thing I, I realized, I was dropping off my business cards, Nelly. Hmm. And oftentimes, again, the chef is not there or the owner is not there. And so I would leave my business card in the hands of a server or a hostess. Hmm. And I was finding that my you know response rate from that was not so great, as you can imagine, right? Like, you're playing telephone basically where you're trusting a hostess or server to communicate your message about your, your passion for your business to the owner who they may not see for a week. It just was falling apart. Right. And I'm sure those business cards mostly ended up in the trash. (laughs) So I realized, you know, what do you, what makes something stand out for me? Um, and it, I made sort of thought about, you know, during holiday card season, rarely now will I get actual handwritten cards from friends or family. But when I do, it it really is just such a special, unique touch. I think especially in this world we live in now where everything is so digital Mm -hmm. um, and is so instantaneous. I think for me, at least getting that personal handwritten note is so special. And so I actually went to a nice stationery store in in, um, my neighborhood in New York and I bought some very nice, thick, you know, postcards of a very pretty color and now what I do is I actually, so I do, I do the Facebook stocking thing where if I go to a restaurant and I really like the food and I think it would be a great fit, I do some online research and I figure out who is the owner, mm-hmm. um, what is their story, what is their name, do they have, you know, it can get a little creepy where, you know, do they have kids, <laughs> are they married to the chef, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. But the more detail you can have, you know, maybe not for that first contact, but it, it, it humanizes the interaction, right? I so I do a little um, searching on, on the background and then I actually handwrite a note um, and I clip my business card to it and I'll go with that in hand to the restaurant. And once again, even if a hostess or a server is the only one there to greet me, they look at this and you can see their eyes smelly. They, they're like, oh my God, I'm actually wow. holding this handwritten note. I can't just throw this away. Like I need yeah. to make sure this gets to the owner. Yeah. And then that, that was my way of controlling, you know, the message first of all, and to the owner, but it was also a way of really standing out and being remembered. And my response rate has been almost hundred percent in that case, even oh, if wow. the answer is, thank you so much. We're not interested they feel obliged to respond to me and call me back. And so it's things like that where I think um, the more creative you can be, and if you bring your own personal experience into your work, and in this case it was, you know, I love getting handwritten notes. How can I apply this in this challenge I'm having of how to get people's attention? And you can, being an entrepreneur allows you that freedom to really try things out. And then you really own the solution. You own the results. And that's a beautifully fulfilling feeling that's very different than I'm, corporate work I found for me personally yeah I I really like the story and I can imagine that you know if I get a handwritten anything 
there's just you'll feel guilty for throwing it away it'll be like right, no exactly. it's wrong i can't do that right so exactly yeah. that's right so i was thinking about you know as you're describing this and you said that you're a solo founder are there times when you get overwhelmed 100% mm. 100% there are times i find you know and it's one of those things where personality plays into it i think some people are um, personality wise they have the sort of um they have certain qualities that make it easier or harder to do something like this solo. Um, for me personally, I actually do think I have certain qualities that make it easier for me to do on my, on my own. I tend to be, um, fairly headstrong and stubborn and, um, I, I like control. I know this about myself. I don't think there's, those are positive qualities all the time, but knowing that I think it's really about being self-aware and knowing that about yourself, um, and understanding, what's going to make the most sense from a dynamic standpoint, um, in terms of having a co-founder or not. I think for me, so at the end of the day, um, it, the decision to not have a co-founder really came down to wanting, only wanting a co-founder who could be truly complimentary to me. And right. I know that a lot of entrepreneurs talk about this. Do you have complimentary skill sets with your co-founder? But let's get to the bottom of this, you know, and, and you and I coming out of Wharton, we have friends who started businesses to get businesses together, whether in school or after school. And I've seen a lot of partnerships go south mm. when there weren't clearly defined differences in the skill sets uh, and perspectives of the founders. So two yeah. Wharton MBAs get together and say, we should start a business. Mm. Well, do, I mean, does that really make sense? Because guess what? Chances are that you both came from management consulting or investment banking or <laughs> you know, some sort of corporate work. And, and in, I'm in no way belittling this. I'm just saying, pointing out the facts of the, of the matter, yeah. which is, you know, you probably have pretty similar experiences and outlooks on how you're going to make decisions. Yeah. And um, that can that can lead to synergy in some cases, but more often than not from what I've observed, it, once you start having conflicts, um, the problem is that you don't have clearly defined expertise on who's going to make the call on this because you have very similar expertise mm. and very similar ways of looking at a problem. And so I did not want to go down that path where, and here, here lies the challenge, Sonali, because guess what? Just given my work history and my education history, I know a lot of the people who look kind of like me in terms of their path, their career path, and in terms of the way they've been trained to think and the way they've been trained to look at problems and solve them. Yeah. And that's wonderful when you're talking about friends or, or a team in a corporate environment. But when you want someone who's very different from you, like I wanted somebody who'd been maybe not, not a chef because I don't think that's the skills that I need, but a general manager at a restaurant hmm. or someone who's done property management for a mall, you know, that would be my dream co-founder. But yeah. here's the, here lies the rub, Sonali. I don't know those people in my network. Hmm. It was astonishing to me when I actually sat back and I said, there must be, I don't know, 20,000 hospitality workers in New York City. I don't know a single one. <laughs> I don't know a single one. It's yeah. astonishing. You know what? You think you're taught with the power of your network, but guess what? My network is lawyers, doctors, management consultants. They're people who don't fit, you know, the complementarity that I need. Mm. And so I, that became, and so it made me realize I had to network in a whole different industry, number one. But number two, it also got me thinking about, okay, the skill set, is this somebody who I could actually find in a first employee, in a first hire? Mm. Because the economics of that, of course, are very different, right? And the, and the control that you give up also looks very different right. if you hire this person versus bring them on board right. as an equity partner. Right. So for me, you know, I think it really came down to, well, there are, there are 20,000 hospitality workers in New York City. Chances are very good that when, it, when it's time for me to find a general manager, I will be able to hire somebody who's really talented and who will be a phenomenal lieutenant, but that person can be a salaried employee. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to give up the either the equity um, position 
or the sort of control over day-to-day management that I would have to to get a co-founder. So I think in my particular case, it just was more logical to hold out for that first hire. Um, but I also, once again, it is about knowing yourself. So much of this is about the psychology. I'm finding certainly yeah. the hardest part of being an entrepreneur, especially a solo one, but I know from friends who have co-founders that this is the case for them too, is the psychological aspect. Exactly. It is yeah. how do you, you know, it is your baby. You care so much about this business in a way that I've never cared about a nine to five job or even a nine to nine job or, you know, whatever. And and not only that, but it's all the ups and downs are magnified. They're amplified. You, when you're, when something's going right, you feel on top of the world because you probably did it. You are responsible for that win. Um, And again, it's your business. But then when the downs are equally low, if not lower, and how do you have the mental stamina to push through those cycles? Yeah. And and, you know, and keep going and stay inspired. And especially if you're leading a team, which I'm not doing now, you need to do that not just for yourself, but for your team too. That's the hardest part. Absolutely. So do you do anything about that? As in, uh-huh. so you mentioned that you're a headstrong person, but uh, yeah. at times when you do get low, does anything help you? Yeah. Two things I would say. Number one is just finding a like-minded community of fellows, right? Who are going through or have gone through similar experiences. So I've been very fortunate that, here in New York, I do have, it's a very small group, I would say four, five, six people. Um, but friend, personal friends who I knew before I started FET who also have brick and mortar businesses and they're at different stages. And so we've kind of informally, usually it's just through one-on-one conversations, we'll get drinks or we'll get on the phone. Um, I'll, I'll bounce ideas off of them. So it is a support group, um, but it's one that they're, you know, they're friends as well as colleagues in a sense. And so that has been invaluable to me because without them, you know, not only would I not have solved some of the tactical problems that I've come up against with starting this business, but I also just psychologically would have, you know, really melted without that moral support. Mm. So that's one thing that has been so critical for me. I mean, nourishing those relationships, I think is the best thing you can do for your business because you're keeping yourself sane um, is very important to make sure that you, you do the right thing for your business. And the other thing is, you know, one of the questions you asked me before we got on this um, call is, you know, what resources would you recommend for folks? And one of the, one of the things that's been very uh, motivating for me is reading books by very successful entrepreneurs. Um, Mm. For example, Onward by Howard Schultz, the founder of uh, founder, we can get, there's details as to what his founding role in Starbucks is, but the CEO of Starbucks, um, <laughs> okay. a phenom- just, or Steve Jobs, I just finished the Walter Isaacson biography recently. It took me mm. several years. You, I think you read about these people who've just gone through, you know, what, you, what little problem you're going through magnified by a thousand times. And it's just, it, it can only inspire you because you know, kind of the ending of their story, you know, that they've built these incredible businesses. Um, and I think that's also, that keeps me it gives me perspective and it keeps me grounded. So I, I look to inspirational stories like that. That's great. Yeah. Do you want to recommend any other resources for either budding entrepreneurs or even current entrepreneurs? Maybe we focus on the on the brick and mortar retail business. So both things sure. which inspire you and then any communities or articles for this domain that you would like to recommend. Right. I It's tough because I think, I mean, I don't know if on the, in the online entrepreneurship space, I would imagine there's many more forums and, um, meetups in Silicon Valley that, that can give you some of these resources with food and brick and mortar. It's just, it's much more scattershot. Um, I don't think we're as organized as an industry. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do find, um, one book I thought was terrific was setting the table by Danny Meyer. 
Danny Meyer's um, the owner of many high-end restaurants in New York, and he's also the founder of the Shake Shack chain. So he's becoming more nationally known. It's his business memoir. So he talks about um, these restaurants he's open and what he's learned about service and hospitality and creating environments for the customer. A lot of what you and I have discussed. Mm. So I think that's a really terrific book um, and just a really fun read as well. Um, and then again, I mentioned Onward by Howard Schultz. That's the other book that I think um, from a brick and mortar standpoint touches on all the different levers that you have to pull the product, you know, the employees, the branding, the store design, you know, the corporate executives. I I think it's just such a complete story and it's, it's a turnaround story. It's not a startup story. It's about how Howard Schultz had to actually intervene in the late nineties and help write the ship at Starbucks, which are things that started to go um, awry. So I think those are the two books I would point people to. And then the other thing I would say to aspiring or current brick and mortar entrepreneurs is once again, a theme that you and I have spent some time talking about, you know, spend time in your favorite examples of whatever your target business is. So if you love wine bars and you really want to open one someday, go spend time in wine bars, you know, and, and chat up the bartenders, ask them to introduce you to the owner the next time that they're in. You'd once again, you'd be surprised how many times that will lead to an introduction and, and some really great insight. Um, but I think again, if you're into brick and mortar, this is an amazing resource that you have. You know, once again, examples of whatever business you want to start. Presumably, you know them, and presumably, you have a set of favorites um, and a set of ones that you don't like. Spend time in those too, and try to figure out what it is about them that you don't agree with yeah. and that you'd want to do differently. Yeah, excellent, uh, Doris. One observation that I have made just in this little or an hour long conversation is that you have a fantastic amount of energy you really do I mean <laughs> as you're you. spe- I mean I, and this is an audio conversation I can't see you but you sound very energetic very passionate about what you're doing so uh, thank you so much. I, I wish you all I the best um, is there any other advice you'd like to share yeah I think in closing there, there's just one thing I, I wanted to share with you and with your listeners um, I do and I once again I've touched upon this briefly but I think nine nine months of running this business full-time um, and then the prior, you know, year and a half before that of, of doing this on the side has really taught me more than, frankly, all my years of work experience before mm-hmm. that. It's, it's been more fulfilling. And I, and I, even if the business folded tomorrow, if I never actually opened this food hall, I still will have learned more by doing this than, and, and will feel more fulfilled than I have with any other career experience I've ever had. And I realized that that may be you know, unique to me. Um, I don't know that's true of all entrepreneurs. I think it'd be an interesting question, you know, if you've asked that of others to see what they say. But, you know, people sometimes say they aren't cut out to be entrepreneurs. They say, I don't have what it takes. Like, I just look at these people. I look at Howard Schultz. I look at Jeff Bezos. And I could never do what they, what they do. And I used to think that I was one of those people who didn't have it in me until the idea for FET in this part of New York came to me. And I wasn't looking for it. You know, we discussed how it was really out of necessity. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to come up with new ideas for startups. Um, and I really think that as I reflect on this, you know, I think if you have a bell curve distribution of the general population, the working population, I think either tale is going to contain people who truly would either never be happy as entrepreneurs, right? Again, that's my personality, mm-hmm. or they will only be happy as entrepreneurs, right? I think those are the tail ends of the distribution. But I think for the vast majority of people in the middle, Sonali, I truly believe that if you find, if you stumble upon, or if you come up with the right opportunity, you know, one that you really feel deeply convinced about, you will find to your surprise that you have it in you to make, to bring this to life because it's it's that conviction. Um, And not everybody I think will ever find something they feel that much conviction about. But I just wanted to say that 
I'm very much one of those people who didn't think I had what it took to do this. And, and I'm doing it and I'm, and I'm just learning spades and spades and I'm so fulfilled. And I love, love this, even if I never open my business. I think that's the important yeah. point here that I wanted to, yeah. to share. No, I, I really love this message because, and especially I think in today's times, there is a lot, it, it is a lot easier to start a business. I, I, mm-hmm. I, yes, brick and mortar business is a lot harder, but compared right. to, let's say 20 years ago, it's Absolutely. still a lot easier, right? So people should Absolutely. definitely give it a shot if they have even a slight desire to do something like this. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. All right. Yes. Thanks a lot, Doris. This was wonderful. And, My pleasure. Uh, enjoy the rest enjoy. of the long weekend. Great. You as well, Sonali. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so that was Doris on starting a brick and mortar retail business. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And of course, if you have any questions at all for Doris or for me, you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. If you enjoyed today's discussion, you should share it. Share it with your friends, your family members, your colleagues. Simply take the link to the episode and share it on your LinkedIn profile or Twitter or Facebook or whatever your network of choice is. That's how we get more listeners. And that's what helps keep this podcast going. Of course, if you want to get updates on new episodes, you should subscribe to the podcast. To do that, you can simply go to our website at learneducatediscover.com where you'll find links to the podcast directory on iTunes for Apple users and SoundCloud and Stitcher for Android users. On our website, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we share not only the latest episodes, but also a lot of other career resources. So do check that out. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learn, educate, discover. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, bye-bye.